to Rules of the Frame. I am your host, Connor Reed, and here is your other host, John Skinner. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah. <laughs> so for those of you who are listening for the first time, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. We're kind of nearing the end of our Limitations Breed Creativity series and... I mean, I, I think we're just having fun with this one. I, I've really enjoyed this series so far of just being able to, like, really deconstruct what limitations are. And um, I think I've said this on, like, every single episode of just like, oh, this is an interesting limitation. But this is also an interesting limitation because there's some minor limitations that happen during the filmmaking process. But this one, most of the limitations actually occur occur after the film is made. So we are covering Terry Gilliam's 1985 film, Brazil. And we also have a special guest with us today, Steve Snedeker. Hey, thanks for uh, asking me to come along for the ride. Uh, I play, uh, I almost said Blade Runner. See, the, <laughs> my favorite film. Well, I did say it, actually. Um, Brazil is definitely uh, an, a top five film for me. Uh, and uh, so I hope to come and add something to your uh, very learned podcast tonight <laughs> uh, I definitely get the limitation thing this is a this is a textbook example of uh, mm-hmm. what can go wrong will go wrong and still prevailing right and I feel like we could really pick any Gilliam film and we could have just like done this entire series just with Gilliam films and like every single one of them have it be a different limitation but this is a, a fun one to talk about it's really thanks for fun. having me it's really funny that uh, you said Blade Runner because the the thing that popped in my head. This is not my word. I know we're getting. I'm not, I'm not getting ahead of where we're at. But uh, the thing that popped in my head a bunch this time, which is not the first time I've seen it. So seeing it again for some reason, it popped in my head. It's like this is Blade Runner combined with the Ministry of Silly Walks. That's what this is. <laughs> Basically, it's, it's silly and Blade also Runner. Snit. Silly Blade Runner. That is exactly what this is. Um, and also, Sned was on our previous Blade Runner episode as well. So it all kind of, it's all fitting in. We have we have a further narrative that we're working Sned into throughout our, our podcast <laughs> library. So this is the second installment. John, you want to get us started off with a summary? All right. We start out on a window display of TVs spouting off nonsense on ducts until they are interrupted by an explosion. We are then transported to an office building where a clerk is duking it out with a beetle. Uh, He smashes it against the ceiling and it falls into a typewriter, causing an error and mistyping a suspect's name from Tuttle to Buttle. Now we are in the Buttle household at Christmas time. Everything is peaceful uh, until they are raided by the police and Mr. Buttle is carried away. Their upstairs neighbor, Jill Layton, worriedly looks down and is almost shot Buttle's file is transferred to a department where it is sorted away amidst a whirlwind of other documents. The head of department, Mr. Kurtzman, looks for the missing Sam Lowry. Sam is in the midst of a dream where he is flying around 
uh, an angelic woman that looks surprisingly like Jill. He is then awoken by his ringing telephone where his boss tells him that he is late. He rushes to work to help Mr. Kurtzman, who tells him that he has been promoted, although neither of them want that. Sam goes to visit his mother, who pulled strings to get him the promotion, but she is in the midst of plastic surgery. Uh, they go out to lunch and meet with her annoying friends and witness a terrorist attack, but pretend nothing happened. Back at work, Mr. Kurtzman enlists Sam's help again to return a bounce check to Mr. Buttle after they found out that he has been killed and that he was innocent. Uh, Sam runs the check over to the Buttles and encounters Jill there and tries to pursue her, but the local kids have destroyed his car. Buttles' daughter then tells Sam Jill's name, and he tries to look her up at work to find out that the information is classified and that the only way he can get it is if he accepts the promotion. That night, he dreams of flying in the countryside until it is torn apart by gargantuan buildings. He spots Jill imprisoned by faceless beings and flies down to save her, but is thwarted by a technological samurai. He wakes up to find his AC on the fritz, so he calls central services, but only gets a pre-recorded message. Later on, Harry Tuttle bursts in and fixes the air unit, but is almost caught by two dim-witted central service repairmen. The next night, Sam goes to a party and meets the second-in-command of central services and accepts the promotion. When he gets to information retrieval, he uses his deskmate's computer to track down Jill, but her file is still confidential and he must go see another employee about it. He realizes the employee is his longtime friend, Jack Lint, and he gets the information from him, only, f only to find Jill in the lobby of his building. He arrests her, uh, and they drive off in her truck to pick up a package that he suspects is a bomb. They are pursued by the police, but are able to evade them. They go to a shopping center, and an explosion goes off, and Sam thinks it's Jill. But to his surprise, she is innocent. Sam is carted away by the police, and he tries to get them off of Jill, but they let him go. When he gets back to his home, it is completely disassembled, and two repairmen tell him that he doesn't live there anymore. He meets Tuttle outside, who sabotages their hazmat suits. Jill shows up as well, and he takes her to his mother's flat. He then comes up with a way to save her and sneaks into central services and tampers with the records to say that Jill is dead. He goes back to the flat, and they spend the night together, but are awoken by another raid, and he is in prison. Sam finds himself in a torture chamber, and his torturer is none other than his friend Jack. All of a sudden, he is rescued by Tuttle, and they make a grand escape by blowing up central services. While trying to hide in a mall, Tuttle is literally consumed by paperwork and killed. The police chase after Sam, and he falls into a nightmarish scenes of a funeral for his mother's friend and being pursued by the faceless figures of his dreams. But he is rescued by Jill, and they drive off happily into the sunset until we realize that it was all a dream, and Sam is still in the torture chamber, lobotomized. And roll the song, Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, what's your, your two words? Uh, my two words are paradoxical beauty because um, I think it's funny, it, it, especially the, the, the Blade Runner comparison, because I was thinking about it, just reading that again and watching again. The ending's a lot darker than Blade Runner actually is, but tonally it feels a lot lighter. And, and a lot of this, this movie is these intricate bureaucratic what would normally be like soulless and boring but there's such 
chaos to them that there's almost a beauty to a lot of the movie is beautiful even though what it's portraying shouldn't be and so i think that's a classic gilliam thing to just have this this the absurdity even if the absurdity Mm -hmm. is horrible it's so absurd that it just it's whimsical and i think that that's uh that that goes not just to the visuals but to the to the to the plot and the characterization is so out there that it just is entrancing and and you know for the first third of the movie it's just like really it should be really boring office politics but you're just glued to the screen because everything is so strange in every scene you have to like figure out what's going on um a lot you know i'm I'm a big fan of dystopian movies alternate history stuff like that where you have to figure out what's going on and i think that this movie uses that where because there's these paradoxes of of these situations that are visually beautiful but technically really ugly uh you're really like paying attention because you're trying to figure out what's going on and you know the world building at the beginning is amazing because it keeps you engaged you have to like it's so weird it's so impossible that you have to like wrap try and wrap your brain around it to figure out what's going on and uh and so i thought that was really seeing it again um it really that was what i think hooks you into the movie Mm. Yeah, so my two words for this are imbecilic incompetence. <laughs> and I feel like that could also probably be applied to every single Terry Gilliam film as well. But it's just interesting breaking this film down and how it's so different than every other dystopian film. Because with every other dystopian film, it's, you know, Orwellian to a sense. But there's always, like, the fear of someone, like, looking over your shoulder and the fear of someone knowing too much And in this, it's like the fear of incompetence because no one knows what they're doing. And that's like honestly the scariest thing about it is there's all of these people who have like these positions of authority or power positions who just like have no clue what's going on. And that's like way scarier than like someone who just like knows too much, who's kind of like staring over your shoulder. But it's just like because you just don't know like what could happen and that the whole system is literally built to fail and to malfunction. So that way it can try to go back and fix itself, but do it so poorly that it again fails and malfunctions and just how no one is prepared for whenever they have like a mistake in the whole bottle thing. And so literally the system can't handle it. And so the entire system is just a giant mistake. And even Sam himself is pretty imbecilic and pretty incompetent at a lot of points and he really only finds and like sturdies himself whenever there's a more incompetent person nearby whether that's like mr kurtzman or the handyman or that sort of thing that's usually the only point whenever he's actually competent enough to do something i'm glad i got to follow you connor because uh my two words actually need a parenthetical third word and i'm gonna take the guest uh guest privilege here (laughs) My uh, my two words with a parent- parenthetical is, here's the parentheses, it says prophetic social satire. Mm. And if you look at Blade Runner um, 1985, I mean, I was alive in 1985. I remember 1985. I was recently married. I, I, I knew the world uh, as it was. We had survived 1984, all thinking that, you know, George Orwell was indeed a prophet. But I think Terry Gilliam is a prophet and he is reflecting on uh, almost with a, with an insane accuracy, the, um, the nutty world that we live in, the insanity of it. If you think about masks and what we're doing in this pandemic, um, 
Blade, uh, Blade Runner. <laughs> Brazil. <laughs> I'll get it right. I should just write a big you know, script in front of me yeah. that says Brazil. Brazil was made uh, for this time. You think about the uh, the the police actions to try to uh, to put down mobs and riots and in, in mm-hmm. places where people are protesting and right or wrong, you know. I mean, it, it's not about that. It's just that there's this this almost police state that emerges in the midst of this. We saw it in the '80s with the G4 conventions and stuff, where there were the uh, you know the riot police would come out. But now it just it just feels like this is the norm. This is the way we approach it. And Brazil is um, now, and uh, and even watching it today, I, I rewatched it in preparation for the for the podcast tonight. I just, I just was, I just was dumbfounded at how uh, how much it reflected our our future or our present. You know how the how much the future was reflected in 1985. Yeah, this stressed yeah. me out a lot more the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Last time I watched it was like five years ago so this was much nice more st- last time it was like oh this is fun you know it's dark but it's fun but this time it was like oh, 2020 like it mm. felt yeah 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 yep so i'll give a little bit of context to the film with our now in film history so brazil is officially released in america in 1985 and we'll get into this a lot more later there was a lot of studio hang-ups and hold-ups and a whole battle that goes on between Terry Gilliam and Universal to release the film. The film was originally supposed to be released in December of 1984, but due to arguments between Gilliam and the producers, between length, ending, tone, all of that sort of stuff, it doesn't fully get released until 85. Well, Connor, Connor, this, Connor, yeah. you have to not blame Universal. You have to blame Sid Sheinberg. Right. Okay. Yeah. There's just there's one Sunday. person that's responsible for this, and Universal, uh, under his uh, tutelage or bowing mm-hmm. down to him because he was a successful producer, uh, went yeah. along with it. But yeah, that's Sid's, true. Sid's the man, and Sid's a mess. Mm-hmm. And I'd say like he was also backed up by Price as well, because Price was also the one who, after the first screening, was like, "It it should have a happy ending, like it should just end whenever." Sam gets back to the bedroom at his mother's flat and then they fly off into the sunset. That should be the ending. So I think I think he also had some other supporters, but then Gilliam also had a supporter and his other producer friend, Arnon Milchan, who was also heavily supportive of it and thought it was a masterpiece. Um, but prior, or yeah, previous to this, um, Gilliam was of course uh, one of the Pythons and he had got his directing start, co-directing with Terry Jones on... Monty Python and the Holy Grail and really enjoyed that but didn't like co-directing as well so whenever Monty Python's Meaning of Life came out he directed his own little segment from it that was a huge hit but it went way over budget and he was just like oh this is what like creative freedom feels like and he goes on to make Jabberwocky as well and after the success of Meaning of Life, Jabberwocky was kind of a flop, but they, him and Arn, his friend Arne Milchen were at Cannes, I believe, and they're just running around saying, hey, we're trying to produce a movie. Do you want to fund us? Hey, do you, we're trying to produce a movie. Do you want to fund us? And so they're asking for $12 million, and everyone's saying no. But then Arne Milchen says, why don't we just ask for $15 million? They're like, okay. And they do, and then they get in a bidding war between Universal and Fox Pictures. Fox... Or Universal puts up nine million, Fox puts up six million, and so Fox has the worldwide rights, 
Universal has the distribution rights in America. And there was also a bit of talk and tumble before that because no one wanted to produce it beforehand, but then Gilliam made Time Bandits, which was also a huge hit, and then after that, everyone was flocking to him. Universal offered him the film Enemy Mind to make, but he turns that down, and that was also one of the bargaining chips of him saying, no, I don't want to do Enemy Mind. Like, well, if he doesn't want to do Enemy Mind, like, that's our next big film. Like, whatever he's going to do must be amazing. And it was. It was Brazil. (laughs) Um, Other films to come out in 1985 were also Witness, Breakfast Club, Goonies, uh, Legend, Out of Africa, which won Best Picture that year, Back to the Future, Ron, Tampopo, all sorts of other good stuff. Um, And also the year prior for Universal in 1984, they released Firestarter, 16 Candles, uh, Conan the Destroyer, Last Starfighter, Dune, and Breakfast Club. So 1984 was a pretty successful year for them. And I think also, you know, that part of that is probably due to Sid Scheinberg as well, because even though he is kind of maniacal and tyrannical in this Brazil story, he is, you know, like we said, a good producer and helped promote Steven Spielberg as well. And so Universal is releasing hit after hit after hit. And so then all of a sudden they get this Upstart who decides to question the authority of the the studio heads and goes to battle with them and then produces Brazil. So, Connor, are we going to talk about the fact that Sid actually did uh, recut the film and and it's available on the Criterion Collection? Oh, of course. Oh, okay. Of course. Yeah, we can just dig into that right now. Yeah, I watched the Love Conquers All version for the first time uh, in preparation for this, which I thought I had seen it before, but I obviously hadn't. So, was it released... It wasn't released theatrically, it just exists? Yeah, it was just re- released for uh, U.S. television. It was the U.S. TV cut of it. Yeah, it's if, if you if you love uh, Brazil like I love Brazil, um, you know, I'm old enough that I've seen Brazil, I don't know, 100 times, might be an exaggeration, but close to that. Uh, I saw it uh, first on VHS when I uh, spied it in, a, uh, in a, a video store. I walked by this and I looked at this and I went, oh, cool. Terry Gilliam and I thought he's one of the pythons oh I bet it's interesting brought it home I was dumbfounded I was like what in the world so you know subsequently of course I own it on every possible format and uh, when you then watch Love Conquers All you're just missing the connections the connective tissue is so powerful in Gilliam's uh, his cut you know I and maybe back to his script I when I watched it again this morning, I, at every time I, we transitioned to the next scene, I just went, that's genius, because he sets it up so perfectly. It, it just, it makes so much sense. Whatever happens in the last scene, whatever the, you know, somebody stubs their toe, in the next scene, the person is limping. I mean, it is, it's just textbook um, continuity, and uh, there's a term for it, and it's, I'm spacing on it now. It would be in my lecture notes if I was trying to tell my students about it, but, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I'm missing. It's, it's continuity of, of um, it's a continuity issue, but it's uh, something from Aristotle. Anyway, the, the long and the short of it is that I kept saying, this, this just leads, each thing leads to the next. It makes so much sense. To cut something out of it, uh, to rearrange something of it, makes it confusing. And uh, really, a lot of people criticized Brazil because they felt like it was just this crazy nonlinear film. But it actually, it actually holds together really well. One piece to the next piece to the next piece. Yeah, I, I was literally out loud. My wife will tell you. I kept saying, "Oh my gosh, that's genius!" At, at each one of the transitions. 
So I'm not fun to watch movies with. I seriously am not. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I completely agree with you. And that's something I really picked up on this time. And in doing research for this, I also just like researched Monty Python stuff as well, because I love Monty Python um, and, you know, listen to interviews with them. And one of the things that they kept on talking about with Terry Gilliam, because he doesn't really act in a whole lot of the skits. And that was never quite his thing. Like he would take the more silent roles or the roles no one else wanted. He's he's Patsy but with the coconuts and you're yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> and and the one um Spanish Inquisition guy who doesn't really talk but whose face is just intensely grimaced the entire time. That's Terry Gilliam <laughs> for visual reference. Um they said that they that he like saved that show because they just like couldn't figure out they'd like write these skits and they're like, How do we end this? Like, there's no way we can possibly move on to something from this. And with the help of his animations and just, like, his zaniness, he was the one who that kept, like, continuity throughout the whole show. And that's why each episode, it doesn't feel like just, like, um, a bunch of, like, skits just kind of randomly thrown together. There's, like, a through line throughout it where, like, the last skit will reference the beginning of the very first skit and, like, tie itself all the way around. And, of course, you know, there's a lot of, like, non sequiturs with it, but it, it, it just... It's so like streamlined, it's like so visually streamlined that it works so well, and I think that is very apparent in his films as well. So one question I do have for because I did not watch the uh, the Love Conquers All version is the end sequence cut down besides cutting the bad you know the very end out is uh, do they make it more? Um, coherent or is it less dreamlike is it less dreamlike or is it the same as it is in in the original there's there's very little fantasy that makes its way to the uh, love conquers all cut it's it very okay. much is a uh, uh uh current time uh frame the 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 time is dealt with basically as a love story um as opposed to mm-hmm. him having these fantastical flying around fighting the dragon or fighting the large samurai guy you know it's just it's not there. So like the uh the falling into the the casket and the the paper eating tuttle is just they cut it out, which makes the the paper eating tuttle is in there, but the casket stuff isn't. I think it goes from paper or tuttle being eaten by the paper to him I think there's like a quick scene of him being chased by the police and then somehow he like or I think he walks through a door and then winds up on the truck with Jill, and it's it's really it really doesn't make any sense. Like I, whenever I was watching, yeah. it's like the pacing in this is insane. It uh, it just does not feel right because like all except for the very first dream sequence, all of the other dream sequences are cut. There's so many other scenes that are taken out and put around. So many subplots that aren't in it, like um, Mrs. Terrain and her slowly acid eaten body is not a plot in it at all um, <laughs> picture me in these that's the one I always remember and and uh, uh, and the, the daughter you know salt oh. <laughs> which Pe- that's how the, mo- the Peppa <laughs> they, pra- they practice that they practice her telling him, offering him salt like that was a yeah. big thing <laughs> yeah that was really good. Well, because oh, this man. watching it a second time, the first time I watched it, the the end hit me hard. Even though, but rewatching it, it's like no, he's lost his. Like you can tell, it's not. It, it's very much w- 
he's not even before the the end dream sequence he's losing touch with reality in, yes. in some ways he's he's mm-hmm. he's um making things more more uh dreamlike than they than reality and and he's you're, he's not a reliable narrator sort of and so i was like yeah i can't even imagine like why would you think you could cut the dream stuff out and like have a like it doesn't make any sense the relation it's not a it's not a good romance like it's not. It, it, there's a delusion involved with it. And so the idea that you're like, man, let's take the dream stuff out and this is a normal romance is mind-boggling to me. Mm-hmm. I think Sid's overall uh, approach was he was trying to make it uh, have a positive, happy ending. He wanted to do something that he thought would relate to audiences for a bigger box office, which mm-hmm. is the role of a big-time producer. The, you know, ultimately, their paycheck is related to how many tickets they sell in the box office. And Terry Gilliam uh, doesn't give a flying flip about how many tickets are sold. Terry Gilliam is interested in making a movie that uh, reflects an artistic's an artistic point of view. Um, I, and I respect that. I love that. And I love his laugh too. I, anytime I listen to an interview with Terry Gilliam, you know, it's just this insidious sort of high pitched sort of giggle that he has. Yeah, it's kind of like a Tigger laugh almost. Like <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's just very. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like very wound up and like just released all of a sudden. It's um, he's a really interesting guy. Like, what were we gonna say, John? Nothing. I was gonna say insidious, but that's uh, that's barely a joke. Yeah, that's hey. barely a joke. Um, cut that. Yeah, he's he seems pretty like pretty happy, pretty jolly, and like all of the interviews I've listened to, and like always a quick one to laugh which that's something that the pythons talk about where they're like whenever they're testing material and they're like okay if gilliam laughs everyone else will laugh like he's kind of like the baseline test um but he seems like for all the hardships and all of that sort of stuff that he's been through i mean he's a he's a pretty content guy and like even whenever uh frank price one of the producers is like why don't we cut it shorter and like give it that happy ending um, he's like, sure, if you want to do that, great. But don't say it's a Terry Gilliam movie. Say right. it's a Frank Price movie. Right, right. That's a great, uh, that, that is a great story. I'm assuming that you're referencing The Wonderful Book by Jack Matthew. The uh, I haven't read all of it yet. Oh, but, it's yeah. so good. I went through it again just in preparation for talking to you guys. Here's another one. You know, if we're making recommendations, this mm-hmm. is a great book on Terry Gilliam. It's called Dark Nights and one. Holy Fools. And so it's basically, uh, a disgu- yeah, there you go. It's a discussion of pretty much all of the Terry Gilliam films through uh, Life of Brian and and uh, the uh, you know the other Python things, um, then uh, into his uh, his uh, wonderful work um, Jabberwocky and mm-hmm. Meaning of Life. I mean, the Meaning of Life chapter is worth reading just by itself. Mm-hmm. So, hey, um, yeah, what go- about his cameos? Are we going to talk about uh, Terry's cameos <laughs> in uh, in this film? Yeah, go for it. Well, I, I, I think I spotted. Uh, I didn't spot a new one. I was always on the lookout for uh, his at the Shangri La Hotel. He's the uh, Terry Gilliam plays the guy that's the cigarette smoking guy, or at least the guy that's got hundreds of cigarette butts on the floor. That's in a hat that is uh, waiting near the Buttles' apartment, and then uh, uh, Sam runs into him when he's running away to go after Jill, or no, he's running away to to go rescue his his car his and, car, then, yeah. and then he sees Jill but um, he runs into him on the stairway and then the same uh, character the Terry Gilliam uh, cameo is happening in the uh, 
uh, in the alleyway, almost looking like he's taking a leak over in the corner. I mean, I was just like, I'm just going, <laughs> this is just, this is just so bizarre. But I, I thought I spied him again. Did anybody else see him again? Oh, in the, really? Yeah. That's that's the main one that I noticed. Uh, is he? Isn't he watching uh, when they go back to the apartment, and uh, the guys are like, "You, you basically, you're kicked out of your apartment." And yeah, he, yeah. He, oh, he is he in the corner watching. Yeah. Yes, yeah. he's watching around the corner. Yes, that I saw that, and I thought, "Oh, there he is again." But I yeah. thought there was another one, and and I'll have to. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. He probably plays one yeah. of the uh, one of the monsters or something in his dreams. He's probably doing oh, something probably. in those states. Yeah, that would not surprise me. Or maybe one of the body bags. Whenever they're all kind of lined up in the back of the truck, that wouldn't surprise me either. If he was <laughs> one of those guys when he's looking so for Jill, good. when he's trying to find Jill. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. One of the things I really appreciated upon viewing it again this time was just like how many film references he makes in there because I feel like a lot of other directors whenever they're trying to be like clever with like referencing back to classic films or that sort of thing think really hard like okay how can we possibly like try to incorporate this and that or this and that and like Gilliam just kind of does it like on the fly in like really ridiculous ways and like one of the things I picked up on this time was like during the bottle raid at the beginning how there's like the slow sleigh bells going and then whenever they break in it turns into the psycho shower theme the ring 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 but with sleigh bells just Ching, 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 ching. It's so good. And I mean, of course, there's the the Battleship Potemkin uh, reference at the end. But he said that was because he's like, I just think like gunfights are so boring. And I think they're no fun to shoot. And so I was like, how do I keep myself entertained by doing this? Let's just do Battleship Potemkin. And so, yeah, you're referencing the, the wonderful uh, uh, commentary that Gilliam does on the film. If, if you've watched the film mm-hmm. and you enjoy the film, I highly recommend that you listen to to Gilliam's commentary because it is as entertaining as uh, the film itself is. In fact, there are some things that you picked up there, Connor, that he said, you know, the Potemkin thing was just he wanted a gun battle where the where the uh, security guard or the, the, the reception, the receptionist is actually playing a video game, you know, shooting people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's so it, it's there are so many little random things that Gilliam talks about that you start to get an insight into his brain and how many details that he's actually encapsulating in this thing. There's the Casablanca right. reference uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, what's on today and uh, and uh, Kurtzman asks him and Sam says, it's, I think it's Casablanca. And then mm-hmm. I think at the end of that scene, there's a line from Casablanca. Like, here's yeah, looking he says, at you. Yeah, he says, here's looking at you, kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I even think like whenever Gilliam shoots himself as like the uh, kind of like big brother onlooker sort of guy, the first time he shows him is very like, Carol Reed-esque and like the third man whenever there's like the reveal of Orson Welles character just kind of like the snarky like grin on his face and like the harsh light on him it's so good yeah I, that's great I, I hadn't thought of the third man but you're absolutely right that that situation when if you first see him definitely uh, reflects that the samurai is the Darth Vader moment right <laughs> yeah right? yeah whenever he like cuts up or whenever the head busts open and it's his face in it Totally, yeah. That's the that's the uh, Luke uh, encountering himself in the uh, in the tunnel or in the whatever that that place was when he was training with with Yodi, uh, Yodi, Yoda. Yoda, <laughs> <laughs> you must. Um, yeah, I I definitely um, I, I just thought real quickly when I saw that today. I said, 
and I'm sure I, re- I thought about that before, John, but you're absolutely right. It was that moment where he defeats the enemy and, it, and he realizes the enemy is himself. And then I quickly went 85, 77, 79, whatever. Yeah, he definitely could have been pulling a, uh, a Darth Vader uh, reference mm-hmm. there. Yep. Yeah. Which is a nice bit of uh, like a closing the loop, too, because Darth Vader visually is definitely inspired by somewhat the samurai. Yeah, samurai. As well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's in Dark Knights and Holy Fools where he also talks about being inspired by Blade Runner because watching it this time I was like Blade Runner came out before this but like Mm -hmm. how much of it was like the inspiration of it and he said like one of the reasons why he wanted to make the movie too was because he was mad at Blade Runner because it (laughs) took the the cheap studio ending because that was before you know we had the the director's cut or the final cut of Blade Runner and so it has the happy ending of Harrison Harrison Ford's character and oh What's what's the actress's name from Blade Runner? Yeah, I'm spacing Sned? on it too. Ra- the Rachel character. Yeah. yeah, Rachel. Whenever they're they're driving off into the sunset, and that um, the scene at the end, like of the the dream, whenever Jill and Sam are driving off into the distance, where he's just like, oh yeah, that was just kind of like a Sean Young Blade Runner. Yeah, Sean, Sean, Young, Sean Young. That's right. Sean Young. Yeah. You gotta know that 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 sappy ending that the studio forced on Blade Runner had to steal Gilliam to say, they're not doing it to me. They're not going to do that to me. Yeah, definitely. But then it was interesting, too, because in that that same interview, he talks about, like, after Brazil was released, him, uh, Ridley Scott, posting an interview of him saying, like, oh, I don't think you should argue with the studio heads and, like, you should just work with them as kind of, and he felt that that was an attack on him for attacking Sid Sheinberg, but then he's like, I got the last laugh because then Legend bombed after that. (laughs) 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 That's hilarious. Yeah, Legend got delayed too for some reason. There's a a Mm -hmm. bit of another studio controversy there. Well, there's a ton of them. Frankly, as I I reread the battle for Brazil this time, I said, I probably need to make my business of cinema students read this book. Um, mm. Now they're all going to think I'm, I've lost my mind by making them watch Brazil in Intro to Cinema and then making them read a book about Brazil in uh, the the Business of Cinema class. But this is textbook uh, textbook shenanigans about what goes on in the movie industry. There's so much BS. Pardon my uh, my <laughs> abbreviated uh, initialed uh, profanity, but it it it's just it's it's just crazy. Can't we just all get along? Can't we make a movie and can't we respect someone's right to be an artist? You know? mm-hmm. No, we can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's that leads to one of my favorite stories of the battle post uh, the film being made but not released where he's trying to get it to screen in the U.S. And um, Sid Sheinberg is like, no, we're not going to release it. The movie's too long. It's uh, two hours and 22 minutes. And he's like, I think there's something where he said, if you can cut it down to two hours and like, two hours and five minutes or so then we could release it um but he's like you know i can't cut that much from it so he gets hooked up with uh usc and says oh i can just screen my film there as like a visual reference but then the studio finds out about it because usc is connected to universal and so they're like nope you can't do that because like students were posting flyers around saying see the director screening of brazil and so they shut it down. And so he's still there with like the entire film with him. 
and he's like in the room with the students. They're all like waiting for the movie and it's him talking about making the film and then like going back and forth of like talking to his agent who's talking to like the head of Universal who's then talking to like the dean's office and so he's like, you know, interrupted back and forth, back and forth. And he just goes back into the students and he's like, you want to know what filmmaking is? This is what filmmaking is. It's not about like figuring out what shots you want. It's not about where to place the camera. It's this that's going on right now. It's fighting for your life, basically fighting for your art. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important that uh, listeners, if they're not familiar with what the, the order of things was, the film had virtually been released or at least extensively screened in Europe. And so all of the Europe, European press, uh, they were all, uh, they were just buzzing about it. So anybody in the film business in the U.S., especially film students who were around uh, film professors who were all kind of in this big fraternity, they were probably talking about it, probably uh, saying, you know, we got to get this film released, you got a chance to see it. When somebody said, come and see the screening, uh, it was pandemonium. The description of that room at USC was that people were piled on. There was no social distancing in that room, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, then it didn't, it didn't get to happen, but Gilliam had a wonderful object lesson, which really brings us, uh, again, to this prophetic idea about Brazil. It, it was as though Terry Gilliam wrote a film about Terry Gilliam making a film. <laughs> and the bureaucracy and the paperwork and all of the stuff that was was coming at our Sam Lowry character and, and the people that were trying to exist in the Brazil world was exactly what Terry Gilliam was dealing with. And fortunately, in the end, it turned out better for Gilliam than it did for Sam Lowry. As far as we know. But. <laughs> yeah, so how did he win um, that battle? Because I honestly, I, I thought... I I had the wrong I, going into this. I had the wrong idea that that it was like the Blade Runner situation where you didn't get mm. to see the director right away. So I didn't know until I you know was researching about it that actually you know that that the the full version was released theatrically. Well, the two hour and whatever seventeen minute version, Gilliam did yeah, cut yeah, a, yeah. like five minutes out of it. So I think the European right. version is the original cut, the the okay. two hour mm-hmm. twenty two minute version. Um, Basically, the win came because they got the critics associations in L.A. and New York uh, to screen it and write about it. And the L.A. people were gaga about it. They voted it uh, at three different categories, best film, best director, best screenplay. Uh, And with some notable uh, um, runners up for uh, some of the actors. Um, Mm -hmm. And and really, uh, because of that, um, there was kind of like a uh, calling of the bluff. And um, Scheinberg basically had, at that point, had to release it. But their goal was to try to get it released before the end of the uh, the calendar year of 1985 so it would be Oscar eligible. It had to be actually screened in cinemas. Uh, and there's a criterion, but it's, it's major markets, I believe, is what it is. You know, to get on Netflix, you have to have like 30 different uh, theatrical screens that it, that it screens on. At least that was... That was what it was. I don't know what the current rules are. Uh, but for Oscars, it just needs to be seen in major markets. And uh, that was the thing that they they had to get the studio to release uh, the prints to make that happen. And Yeah, I think it has to be in playing in theaters for at least a week in that year in order to be eligible for that year. And so they were able to get it out just in time. And they were, uh, there's also a story that there's... Uh, 
meeting going on at Universal where they're talking about like pushing out of Africa for the Oscar run that year. And then they get a call that the yeah LA critics, like the film society that it had won like best picture, best directing and best screenplay. And then they're like, well, I guess we have to release it then. Yeah. Yeah. Their bluff was called. Um, it, I guess it beat out of Africa and best picture uh, in the runoff. There was a the kind of a, mm-hmm. a, 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 you know, they had an initial vote and, it's a fascinating thing. If again, if you uh, if you want to reference a really good book about it, the Jack Matthews, the Battle of Brazil, uh, is worth reading. It's a it's a nerd book um, in terms of the <laughs> film, the nuance of it, but it, it does give you a lot of insight as to how some of that that material works. And this was a low point for director control, right? Because I, I don't know. I have this like I've told Creed before. Like I don't know anything about producers, but I do know. That like after was it Ishtar they kind of reigned and then Apocalypse Now too they kind of overall were pulling back power from directors right so this was a low low point or, or there have been points since that were even worse for I, th- I think it ebbs and flows John I think mm-hmm. uh, there are times when you have these directors that have carte blanche they can do anything they want mm-hmm. uh, and the, the studio will bow down and give them the money and give them the distribution and you know they just basically everything they they touch basically looks like gold. And then, you know, you have a people a, a person that has a a misstep. Like I, I think Scott Derrickson is one of those a, a modern director now. He did uh The Exorcism of Emily Rose and uh then I think he did uh what was the horror film um uh oh, my wife hates it. It's not in uh, <laughs> anyway. Um anyway, and Insidious and, or what what was it? Insidious is that no, the one not Insidious. It, it has another name, okay. and, and it was a there was a second film, okay. same name. Um, anyway, regardless, mm. then he did uh, the day the Earth stood still, the the remake uh, with mm. Keanu Reeves, yeah, and, okay. and it was a complete like stinker. You know, it just it, yeah. bang. It just <laughs> so Derrickson kind of got put on a uh, a pretty short leash at that point, and now he's back with Doctor Strange, and you know, I mean, he's done some really good stuff. Uh, Derrickson's a guy that came out of the LA Film Study Center, uh, and the mm. uh, the CCCU group. So he's, he's oh really? Yeah, he's got a very uh, he's got a very uh, um, at least complimentary worldview to uh, like you know our our worldview, and which is kind of cool uh, to have somebody that influential. But you know, co- yeah, I think Coppola kind of got the kibosh after uh, after Apocalypse Now. But you know, Coppola was set up to do his own thing anyway. He was totally ready to, yeah. to bust out. He had um, so much money; it was ridiculous. I mean, I I think even like with Spielberg, because he gets Jaws, which is a hit, but then whenever he makes 1941 and it just bombs and everyone hates it, then they kind of rein him in too for a bit, and he has to start making some smaller films after that. And so I think it's interesting. I mean, nowadays. You know he can do whatever he want and what and all yeah. that sort of stuff, but a lot of these like really popular directors, you know, they'll have a bomb and kind of get pulled back for a little bit. And I mean, I, I guess that could be also an interesting limitation sort of thing to cover of just like having a big hit. Maybe we could do that at a different point. Um, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's interesting to have someone like Gilliam who is, who's still relatively new to the directing world. Like he had done Jabberwocky and Time Bandits, but to just be like so bold with this, like he doesn't have like a backing. It'd be one thing if like this was like Spielberg in the 90s of him making Jurassic Park 
and fighting for like a final cut for that mm-hmm. where it's like look at me I've created like the most memorable films in the last 30 years like I should be able to do this but Gilliam's just like he had a hit with Time Bandits but no one saw Jabberwocky and he's just like okay out of artistic integrity like this is like my baby I need to be the one to have final cut for this and, and that's just fascinating and I mean shows a lot to Gilliam's character as well he clearly was uh, perceived as impertinent in, in his interactions. No question. Yeah. He gets very extremist at points um, throughout the battle. Like, two of my favorite stories um, is one, the ad that he takes out in Variety magazine that just says, Sid Sheinberg, where is my movie? Brazil, signed Terry Gilliam. <laughs> and Full page. Um, a other, full page ad. A whole page, yeah. 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 And the other is the the interview that he does with De Niro because De Niro had never, like never does interviews, hates it, absolutely hates it, um, but says yes because he wants to promote the film. So him and De Niro go on to this talk show and De Niro is just like, yeah, no, okay. And like not really like responding at all. And so um, the host like leans over and is like, okay, well, Terry, Terry, you have like a new film coming out, right? And you're having some troubles with the studio. And he's like, I don't have any trouble with the studio. I have trouble with one man and his name is Sid Sheinberg and pulls out like uh, a full page picture of him and shows him to the camera and says, and this is what he looks like. Uh, wasn't that Good Morning it's America so good. or something like I that? I think it was Good Morning America. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Terry Gilliam should run for office. I mean, you know, you talk, oh about, gosh, a, you talk about a presidential <laughs> campaign. That would be like unbelievable. That would it's, be insane. It's really funny because... Yeah, you're talking about like Blade Runner, whether or not it influenced him or not. Like that, it's that story contrasted with this. Like you'd think Blade Runner would be the one that you could you could win that battle, and then this would be just cut to to oblivion because it's so different. But I'm I'm obviously I think we're all glad that he won that battle. Uh, because like as bad as Blade Runner the the theatrical version is the the narration version is it's still like coherent somewhat like like it it seems like a, a noir movie it's not as great but this if you cut this i mean cutting this apart is just it would ruin it completely it would be a ter- mm-hmm. it would be a terrible movie like a really bad movie mm-hmm. it is <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, i mean the, it, like, I, I, I see why he fought for it because it's like it would it wouldn't even be the same genre honestly like you'd completely lose that right but it makes me wonder too just if things had gone differently with his career because obviously after this he still struggles with getting enough money to make films like even today even with like don quixote you know it still took forever for him to actually get it. and he still had like a very small budget for it like yeah um but part of me wonders if that came out of him posting the ad in Variety or of, you know, his battle if, like, he got blacklisted by a bunch of studios after that. Um, and then, you know, he has he has issues with Baron Munchausen as well because it goes, like, highly over budget and doesn't do super great either. And he just kind of has, like, this continuing, like, curse that follows him around where he makes, like, incredible films but just, like has to fight tooth and nail for it and like doesn't have enough money for um or and... or Heath Ledger dies in the middle of the imaginary yeah. of Dr. Parnassus, you know, how are we going to deal with this? And he did brilliant. Mm-hmm. It was it was a brilliant solution. 
Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that your whole idea of this limitations thing uh, is in is just embraced in the the output of Terry Gilliam. I think he thrives on uh, adversity. Um, he is the ultimate pearl inside of the um, inside of the clam that's being uh, you know a piece of sand that's an irritation that the that the oyster has to you know generate something to smooth it out and I think Terry I think he just thrives in it uh, he's probably mm-hmm. he's probably one of the healthier people on the planet only because he he lets his stress out in the process of making these films he gets it out like you know we, mm-hmm. we this is this podcast is about Brazil but um, you know you could talk about Tideland you, know, you talk about a movie that is just that will stretch your uh, your comfort level um, the Dickens character you know is just and Geliza Rose I mean they're just where did this stuff come from? And it's mm-hmm. come from the mind of a of somebody who's got lots of stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's actually an interview with Michael Palin where whenever he's talking about Terry Gilliam, he's like, oh, he loves the opposition. If his film came out and like everyone just said like, oh, we love it, he would be mad. But if someone's <laughs> like, no, I hate it because of this and this, he's like, okay, like, Yes, here we go. And he, he, I mean, he loves that sort of opposition. And that even comes out like back in Monty Python, um, just because it was a constant battle between them and the censors of them just getting censored by everything. And there's like one where um, they're like, you can't show full frontal male nudity in this. Like you have to censor it somehow. And so what he does is he cuts out like a picture of the face of like the head of the censor board and uses that as like the censorship in it. You know, for for Christmas, I was given the uh, the complete Monty Python's Flying Circus uh, that has all of the stuff that was censored uh, put back hmm. in it, and I I am almost unable to tell what was censored because our our standards have changed so much since uh, hmm. the time that that was released in the in the seventies. I guess it started in 69 or whatever when they first started doing it. I first started seeing Monty Python in 72. Um, I was in high school, and it was just... It, we talked about it at lunchtime because they aired on, on the, the public television station uh, on Sunday nights. So we'd watch it, mm-hmm. try to memorize as much as possible because we didn't have any way to record it, and we'd come back and we'd parrot everything back uh, to each other. You know, course there's an owl in the oop. Awesome. If there weren't an owl in the oop, it wouldn't be an oop <laughs> now, would it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, we had all those little bits down, but um, I, it, it's curious because obviously the British television standards were so much less uh, stringent than U.S. standards. Um, I, it, it's it, it is interesting. Terry Terry Gilliam is he was not a Brit. He worked for a uh, like a Mad Magazine sort of spinoff in New York. Mm-hmm. Came to. Uh, to England, I think by the invitation of John Cleese, which there's there's several different accounts of how that worked. John Cleese's biography too is a is a wonderful thing if you haven't read that. Um, and he just fit in. Your comments about his being the continuity, the glue that pieced all of that stuff together, really was true. And then uh, that opening sequence from uh, the Meaning of Life, uh, so classic. <laughs> it's the uh, Crimson Permanent Assurance, yeah. right? <laughs> so. I, I I really think that uh, that Brazil for me represents uh, there, there's a there's a ton of different tangents I could go off on, but the reason why I I make my students watch it is very myopic. I want them to look at the production design. Uh, we talk about mise en scène 
in our class, mm-hmm. and this is the film I have them watch. Uh, and I explained to them, I said, this is mise-en-scene on steroids because everything in the frame has, a, has meaning and value. Everything all along the way is there to reinforce the, uh, the world of Brazil. And so the signage, the serial numbers that are everywhere, there's an MOI, uh, MOI, you know, the Ministry of Information mm-hmm. abbreviation everywhere. In fact, as I was watching it today, uh, the, uh, the sequence where, where Sam finally gets up to the, uh, to the uh, uh, information retrieval or what, whatever his, his new job is, I can't remember all the titles, but he's in those <laughs> endless hallways. And mm. even the way that the, that the DP and Gilliam arranged to shoot the, the, the way that appeared to be endless hallways, it was just one hallway. They just used mm-hmm. one hallway, and they just kept reversing the angle and, and the, uh, the, the perspective. And then you had the uh, Ian Richardson character with all of his minions following him, you know, shuttling through yeah. the... Yes, no, <laughs> save that. Take that to financing. Everything about this, this film has value, and you watch it and you, you say... Uh, that must have been some kind of uh, set dressing party that they had uh, beforehand. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Which I mean, uh, Sned, I have you to thank for my love of Gilliam because uh, watching Brazil for class, I was just like absolutely blown away by it, and just like just remember being like shaken, <laughs> like awoken. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like after after I saw it, I just remember like uh, walking in the. Uh, Walker Student Center seeing like all the ducts and like all these different things and I was just like oh my <laughs> gosh like it's happening and just like going crazy ducks um, upon ducks upon ducks yeah. yeah and I mean I'm just really picking up on just all of that sort of stuff afterwards but um and then just like loving Gilliam after that because like of course I'd seen Monty Python stuff in high school and I think the only other film of his that I'd seen before this was The Brothers Grimm but after seeing Brazil, I was just like, I need to watch everything that he's made. I probably it's told just... I probably told you to watch Time Bandits next. You know that was that was Time Bandits. Yeah, or... I didn't watch that one until a bit later on because okay. I just don't think I had access to it. But that was like one of the ones I wanted to watch the most. I think I watched Twelve Monkeys after. Oh that, yeah, actually. Twelve Monkeys. Of course, you know La Jete, you know, based on an mm-hmm. amazing uh, uh, Marker Chris Marker film. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I love 12 Monkeys. I got to watch 12 Monkeys again. It's been it's been way too long. Yeah, but he does I mean, he just throws you so much into like the world that you kind of forget that there's something outside of it. I mean, that's how I feel in um Time Bandits, Brazil, uh Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas especially. Like that one you're just like strapped in for this ride and you cannot get out even if you want to. He's so good at world building and especially in a day and age whenever everything is trying to build a world and every film is trying to be part of like a new universe and does it so, so much through like dialogue and explanation and just like unnecessary exposition to have someone be so visual of a filmmaker and to create these sorts of things because $15 million to do what he did for this movie is insane. Crazy. I don't understand how he did it. Yeah, even in 1985 dollars, it's still insane. And one of the brilliant things that he does, and I mean, that helps define his look, is just the wide-angle lenses. Because all of the scenes inside the the lobby in Central Services, you know, this, he's like 
corridors were just too small. Like everything was too small. It didn't look big. And so he had to shoot with like these super wide angle lenses and it makes it look like cavernous. Like it's very like Orson Wellesian and like um, Citizen Kane, you know, the big drawing room in Citizen Kane is what I always think of whenever you cut into that. And I mean, he just shoots it majestically. Yep, I would agree. Now, there's a couple things that didn't make the the film that were part of the original script, like the eyeball sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's uh, there's some uh, some of Terry Gilliam sketchings. One of the things that Terry Gilliam, as an animator, is he's also an an expert uh, uh, artist. I mean, he just is able to sketch his ideas out, and so there's some some wonderful uh, imagery. And I think technology had not yet come to the point. Where uh, you know today they would have been CGIing most of the stuff or, or doing some some weird uh, three three D uh, uh, Unity uh, Unreal Engine whatever uh, to to generate it, um, but I I don't really miss it. I, I look for where it could have gone and I say you know I love the I love the Sam flying sequence. Uh, I love the the use of uh, Michael Kamen's great score. You know, mm-hmm. Michael Kamen rips off all kinds of uh, classical music riffs from this. He's got Beethoven in there. He's mm-hmm. Gustav Mahler. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I kind of blame uh, Strauss. Yeah. So yeah. I say John Williams is kind of the ultimate ripoff artist because he's doing that. And I, with all due respect, I mean, he's an amazing composer. I wish I had his skill and and uh, and uh, filmography. Um, but Kamen just does such a wonderful job of weaving that little that little interval motive Ba-da, from the Brazil theme it comes mm-hmm. in throughout it's it uh, yeah I was just I kind of was enamored again today by the by the use of musical uh, intervals and simple simple little musical ideas uh, and then of course interweaving the actual Brazil song into it <laughs> is classic as well Xavier Cugat yeah <laughs> you could almost argue that that's like the lasting legacy of the film to someone that's never seen any of his films never seen brazil i think still if i see you know if you see like a, a really tightly running machinery or whatever that song just kind of comes on in your head like that mm-hmm. to take a 60s brazilian song or whatever it was samba or whatever genre it is and make that just like so closely associated with something completely random completely opposite with the with the machinery and and you know this rube goldberg stuff is just i mean that's that's it's so effective that it just sticks mm-hmm. there's another like interesting little story about the whole like rube goldberg kind of thing whenever sam wakes up uh, at the beginning of the film and like his toast starts up and the bath runs um, is that before everything was released that Gilliam did a private screening with Steven Spielberg of showing him the film and was just like saying you know like how long do you think it was he's like an hour and a half he's like nope it's two hours and 22 minutes he's like that's amazing like this is incredible and then at that point Back to the Future was being made and like Spielberg was like a second unit director uh... I think and so, like, goes off to go shoot it, like, the next day. And then someone calls up Gilliam whenever Back to the Future is released. And they're like, they ripped off Sam waking up in the movie. And so he's like, he's like, I, you know, I still blame Spielberg to this day for ripping off Brazil for Back to the Future. Yeah, Gilliam uses a British word, nicked. They nicked it. Nicked. Yeah. <laughs> yep, it's so good. That's that's a big part of the early like Doc's early character development too. Like before mm-hmm. you even meet him, you kind of learn 
his personality from that. So, that's crazy, though. I didn't know that story. I, mm-hmm. he, I can tell why he's mad because I think it stands out more in Back to the Future than it does in Brazil. It's just part of the world in Brazil. Mm-hmm. It's like the one little glimpse you get of that in Back to the Future. You're like, oh, that's really cool. What was that? Like, yeah, and then there's nothing related to it ever again. So that totally makes sense that he just stole it. <laughs> yeah, well, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, it's yeah, lots of lots of just rearrangements of old ideas. Spielberg already good. steals everything, so. What was it? Good artists <laughs> copy, great artists steal, or whatever. Yeah. I I think influence wise for this film, one of the films that I feel like directly is influenced by it is the Coen Brothers Hudsucker Proxy. Like oh, when you look yes. at that and you see like, especially the intro sequence whenever he's working in the mailroom, I'm like that is the mm-hmm. shot. Yep, that's the shot mm-hmm. from Brazil. Yep. Yeah, I would agree. Those what. Those wide-angle shots, big, big buildings, the the shot where they're walking outside of the hall, and it's just you can just see so much of the building. Yeah, that's totally mm-hmm. the whimsy. It, it steals a little bit of the whimsy to keep that world going, but it's yeah. just a little bit. I'd love to also talk about just – we mentioned it briefly, but just the production design of this film is just like absolutely a stone. And one of the things that, um, Sned, I remember you pointing out in class back then was just like – how everything has its place in this. Like you could tell like it's just such a tightly constructed world and like every wire is where it meant to be where it's meant to be. Every duct is purposefully placed and all that. And like so much so that you don't even notice it and they have to keep on like rewatching it over and over again and be like, Oh wow, I didn't notice that piece of production design with that and that and that. Yeah, there's there is no mistakes in what appears in the frame. It is very much a uh uh it's a production designer's uh, paradise uh, or potentially nightmare. I mean, depending upon <laughs> how much of a taskmaster Gilliam really is as a director. But I would imagine, I, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just speculating. I don't know. Uh, I'd love to ask Terry Gilliam about this, but I would like to know who are the people that are his uh, key team members, people that, that mm. come along with him. I, I mean, I, all we got to do is look at the credits of his films, and we probably could find common names, uh, consistent names. But I'm guessing there are people, when, when you're an eccentric, you either, people work for you because they love you, or people quickly move on to something else. You know, there is there is this sort of devotion, and and uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's Hopefully it's not cultish, but it, but it, 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 it kind of has the feeling like somebody really is is selflessly devoted to that vision. Uh, I'm guessing that there's a team of people that are part of this. When Terry Gilliam says it's time to make a movie, these people pack up shop and go for it. it it's kind of like that mm-hmm. that little guy that uh, was in um, Barry Lyndon that uh, came along and kind of became. Uh, oh uh, yeah, Leon Vitali. Yeah, I mean that's a you watch that documentary and you realize you know this guy became. Uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick's right hand man Uh, Mm -hmm. do anything for him yeah and I think especially for like his work in like the 80s and 90s where it's very apparent that he has like his team with him throughout it where you can tell I mean Jabberwocky is the only film of his that I haven't seen because I just haven't been able to find a copy of it but you can tell with like Time Bandits, Brazil Baron Munchausen, Fisher King uh, 12 Monkeys and I would even say Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where it's like this is so like visually sim- similar like prop and set deck wise yep. he, he's definitely got a duct guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> the duct man 
I, I just think that the opening of the movie with the advertisement for, are your ducks old? You know, I mean, are your ducks <laughs> dilapidated and, you know, you need to update. And, you know, he walks in the room and they're the same ducks. They're just painted white. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like you you pretty much get the world from that. Like right. just the fact that mm-hmm. you have to watch that on that TV, you get the world. Yeah. How bizarre it is. It's true. It totally sets it up. Reminds me, I mean, like in comparison to Blade Runner, very much like the scene of like the spinner flying through LA and just having like the all of like the ads like the digital ads on the side of like the buildings where it's like oh yep this is the world and that you know that's what Brazil does with like its opening shot as well it's fantastic and amazing one of my favorite things in this is just like how everything is so deconstructed and made to be as like complicated as possible um The phone is just insane of like all the different wires with all of like the different like plugs in it. And oh my gosh, it's amazing. Yeah, Gilliam admits that he's he was obsessed with switchboards. So he just was going to make the phone a, uh, a little, everybody has their own ability to be an operator in that. Mm-hmm. And and the TV yeah, monitors, the the computer monitors. You know, it's oh like gosh. it's a it's a a CRT that's tiny with a magnifier with a manual typewriter as your input device. All of that's amazing. And just like how much it like runs on like paperwork as well and um i don't know if john you know about like the tom stoppard's original intro for the for the film was supposed to be this big thing of like you're in the middle of a jungle and you see the beetle that gets squashed in the office and the beetle like lands on a piece of paper but then everything starts getting destroyed and eaten up by these big machines that start just crunching everything together and then it all spits it out and then, like, the beetle is just tracking along with it. And then this goop just gets transferred into paper. And then the paper gets put into the office. And the beetle keeps on following with it. And then that's that one sheet of paper that the beetle has been on the whole time turns into the the buttle the mistake. The clerical error. It's buttle, not tuttle. Yes. And uh, I really like what Tom Stoppard does with the, the script. And I think he, him and Charles McEwen really bring a lot together because I think McEwen kind of brings in like the the Gilliam-esque humor to it because Gilliam admits that he's not great at writing dialogue like he's really good at coming up with like ideas for things but dialogue isn't his strongest suit and I think McEwen really brings in a lot of those like winner lines and just the ones that are really hilarious as well and he's the one who plays um the deskmate Lime in the the split desk. Okay, very cool. I didn't realize that that was that. I I never made that connection. That's cool. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, yeah, a line like "care for a little necrophilia." Hmm. <laughs> um, one thing I will actually admit about the Love Conquers All version um, is I think that it makes Kim Greist, Greist, I think it makes her performance a little better. That was just kind of one thing I noticed watching it this last time where I was like, oh, it's, in the full version, it's good, but it's like not as solid. Well, apparently they used outtakes, as many outtakes of Sam and and Jill together, um, you know, they they used those outtakes in the Love Conquers All to try to cover Mm -hmm. some of that. And, you know, it might literally be the phenomenon of uh, Sid was maybe a little uh, taken by Jill and wanted to place her in a better light. 
Yeah, who knows? Yeah, that that was the big thing watching it again that that kind of stuck out to me was that the her reaction to him doesn't make any sense. And so it's like how much of this is like obviously when he you know he he shows up and she's all doled up and her hair is is long and everything. That's mm. that's wrong cuz you see later that she still has short hair when he gets arrested. So like it's not clear what's real and what's not at that point. But still, like her, she, he's, he's, he's nuts to her. You know, like he's <laughs> not in any way likable, and at, to, at first with her, and so like that arc doesn't. You know, it's always my all question is like, how much of that is real? How much of that is delusion? Because he doesn't do anything uh, until he saves her. Basically, that that makes sense why she she's drawn to him at all. I do think her performance, like in the truck, is really good. Just like whenever. She's like pretending to like him. Yes. That scene just yes. like always cracks me. I'm just like, oh, oh yeah, tall, sexy, good looking, yeah, just my type. Just to get him to lean back, so you can kick him out. That's great. So great. Great. But then she feels bad when he almost dies, and and at that point, it's like, I'm not. Everything from that point on, it's like, is this real or is this him making it up? Which is fine, but I I, w- I can imagine how editing it into a more of a coherent romance would improve it if you were going for that which you shouldn't but mm-hmm. that is sort of a, a a thing that I was confused by a little bit this time mm. I, mm. I did uh, because I've seen it so many times I, I and obviously I know how the film ends I'm always looking mm-hmm. for any hints of what's to come and I felt I felt much earlier screening at this time that that's, uh, Sam had moved from the world of uh, reality to the world of delusion much sooner so that the, uh, the the little dream sequence as he's being lobotomized at the end which is not so little it's a you know it's a nice long uh, set piece but I, I just felt like he had he had kind of gone off his rocker much earlier and and maybe even at the very beginning I mean he kind of like comes unglued uh, at the very beginning of the film just because he's so enamored with his fantastical, uh, world of uh, this girl that he dreams about um, in the in the, the clouds. Uh, maybe from the very beginning, Sam is just he's just not <laughs> he's not completely connected. The only thing, the only thing that makes that made me think that by the end he even is interacting with her in any real way is when they're when they, he gets arrested and they're both in bed. Is that her hair is short? And then it was just long. So there's something more real that's being revealed on camera versus what he just was imagining. But it still feels like that's all made up. I don't know. Like, yeah, I, I want to watch it a million well, times. Well, I think, and just... John, I, I think at that point, that's the one point in the movie where I think he was probably as real as it comes. Because mm-hmm. when she basically invites him to, to come and sleep with him or sleep with her, um, you know, care for a little necrophilia, that moment he takes his coat off jumps into bed he shows more enthusiasm as a person uh, at that moment then of course the wonderful little iris thing happens and then mm-hmm. you know we come back to the next uh, the next day and then she's she's got her the wig off and now she's back to her short hair and she's wrapped in a bow and uh, basically it, it's at that moment that you're starting to think oh this could be a happily ever after situation mm-hmm. short lived mm-hmm. obviously and I didn't I don't think I ever caught it before but when Sam is cowering and saying, no, she's dead or she's, you know, she's deleted or she doesn't exist mm-hmm. or whatever, um, 
and they're basically after him, pointing guns in his face. It cuts to black, and then you hear a bunch of gunshots. Mm, yeah. yeah. And and I don't think I'd ever caught that before. I always kind of wondered what happened to Jill. And mm-hmm. I realized, I think she got killed. I think, and then they, you know, later on, um, the, in the Santa Claus suit, uh, yeah, Helpman. yeah, Helpman says, you know, that she was killed uh, resisting arrest. You know, and then he's like, I did that, and then like trying to cover up his face, and he's like, Yeah, well, it's mystifying us because it seems to have happened twice. Because at first you also think mm-hmm. like, Oh, you know, it was just like him already putting that in, but then like whenever he's like. Um, oh, it happened twice. That's what's really confusing us. And that's whenever you're like, oh, shoot. That tied with like the gunshots. And he also like shows like a lot of enthusiasm too whenever they're in the truck and like first like break through the barrier. And he's like, oh, yeah, woo, woo, woo. And then like the police start chasing after yeah, him. That's, that's like the other point where he shows like the full emotion too. And just like, and Gilliam of just like, in, in the commentary talking about during that car chase with the police, whenever they like crash into the house and all that, he's like, I wanted this to be like my revolt against star Wars and like any big blockbuster thing where you can just do like mass, like killings of people. And it doesn't mean anything where like, you know, the, the police officers like crash into and like, Oh yeah, this is fun. And then they look in the rear view mirror and see the guy like running around on fire. And it's like, Oh wow. This is a lot more real. You were talking about the, um, the idea that it's incompetent like really he's sort of doing the the traditional like w- awakening person in a dystopia you know protagonist that he's starting to, that's kind of the arc they have but really if you think about it he sh- shouldn't have done any of that and he got her in trouble and like when they when they went into when he blew through the security checkpoint they probably would have gotten through fine like because things are so incompetent there's a sense that like a lot of what he did, he got himself into trouble that he didn't need to. Yeah. Oh, completely. But they they said, like, Michael Palin's character said that they were already going to arrest her whenever he's talking to to him. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I'll go take care of it quick firsthand before, yeah, like, yeah. they actually arrest her. So I think, I mean, she would have been arrested either way. But then she also got killed because of him and all the other stuff that happens with her. And just any, I mean, any person he meets in that, he just kind of screws over at some point or another. <laughs> yeah, the, the police state bad luck. flips between hyper-competence and complete inability to do anything <laughs> yeah. at a moment's notice. Almost Keystone Cops. Mm-hmm. I, it's interesting trying to figure out what he's trying to say throughout all of this. And, like, you know, even the title at the beginning of saying, like, somewhere in the 20th century <laughs> and, like... <laughs> I like that. Um, I love that. Yeah. And, like, I didn't remember that. And then, like, in interviews, he's like, no, I wasn't trying to be, like, futuristic. It's not supposed to be futuristic. It's supposed to be, like, all of the 20th century at once. Like, you know, you have the Art Deco and German architecture and, like, the Messerschmitt cars. Then you also have TVs and you have, um, you know, all of these other, like, modern day systems. And then there's, like, a little bit of the future stuff in there as well. And um, And I think that's, like, what helps make it so timeless as well and um even just like him clarifying he's like everyone's saying it's totalitarian it's not totalitarian it's a bureaucratic state and i'm like yeah that's like always how i read it you know it's Mm -hmm. it's all the paperwork nothing being able to happen incompetence everywhere and kindness and generosity is gone like tuttle isn't doing like anything like illegal you know he's being hunted (laughs) down 
because he's going down and fixing people's AC units for free. And he's been marked as a terrorist because of that. Uh, and the Bob Hoskins uh, cameo at oh, Central Services, Spore, yeah. you know, <laughs> him and the the other guy, that, that's Spore or whatever his name is. Um, yeah. They, they are just hilarious. Central Services, Central Services, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I just, it's just, it, it really is hilarious. It, it doesn't really, it is a bit nonsensical because why do they keep coming back, you know, but, but it's a kind of a classic sort of, they're so incompetent that they, they, they can't, can't show up on time. They can't uh, really fix it. They make a mess out of anything they do. Then when they're trying to fix it, they turn it into an ice box, uh, a freezer. Uh, that whole moment when Jack, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, when uh, Harry Tuttle uh, shows up, I always call him Jack the Plumber, but it's it's uh, it's the <laughs> it's Harry the uh, vigilante plumber plumber um, Archibald. He, when he uh, when he shows up. Yeah. Uh, to uh, to swap the uh, air conditioning and the poop chute, I mean it's just oh it's so bad and it's just gaggable. Yeah. I mean you just you you got to know that you know and and yeah. Sam enjoying it with the periscope you know <laughs> yeah there's there's definite like just full on Gilliam moments in there and that's always when I think of him like yeah that's that's just like straight straight out of him that and like. The hats that they wear just crack me up. Oh, yeah. the, long like the, the really long baseball caps. That's so it's good. It's the the Sandlot baseball cap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I kind of like they're sort of doing it on purpose though, as revenge though, right? Like there was a there was a vengeance to I what think they were so. doing too. Yeah, it's it's funny because there's always this debate like of the two the dueling the dueling dystopias is always like are are we more under threat of uh, a brave new world or 1984 like those are kind of the mm-hmm. two sides but i almost think this is more accurate to what oh yeah uh is is a real a real world that we can live in and do live in um it's just the bureaucratic incompetence sometimes people are coming after you sometimes it's just following the rules and some people are evil and some people are not but they're all part of the machine and you know right. it just crushes everyone's individuality well it's it's all kind of summarized in um Terry Gilliam's little quip that he made in like the early 2000s of saying I should sue George W. Bush and Dick Cheney for the unauthorized and awful remake of Brazil <laughs> yes well w- they could say it even more now because I think he there'd be a w- whole lot more he should have waited <laughs> yeah um, so Sned have you seen the zero theorem yes I have yeah okay what are your thoughts on it I recently rewatched it um Let's see. First time I watched it, I went, eh. And then I watched it again with a really close friend of mine who who helps me think about stuff. Um, you know, he's he's the guy I gave Ter- uh, Terrence Malick's To the Wonder to, and, mm-hmm. and he came back, and he was almost in tears. He said, that's the most, uh, that's the most uh, uh, elegant exposition of what, it, what love is. And, um, and I thought, God, you know, I, I love To the Wonder, but now I love it more. Anyway, we, we watched mm. uh, The Zero Theorem together, and he provided me with some perspective on it that, that was really actually poignant. I mean, I kinda, it kind of makes me, it, it, it kind of makes me just feel sad for uh, lonely people. You know, um, the uh, Christoph Waltz character is, he's just so desperate. Um, mm-hmm. And it is a little... It, 
to me, it's a little uh, pr- production design wise and story wise, it's a little um, of a cornucopia. It's like a little bit of a it throws some stuff yeah. in a blender. Um, it doesn't have the same cohesion that Brazil does for me. Um, no, scene to scene no. to scene to scene in Brazil, it just it just makes so much sense. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I it's been a while since I've watched it, and I probably am due to watch it again. I have several films that uh, I keep putting on my uh, when I have a, a moment. Um, mm. I I don't I I do have a copy of Zero Theorem somewhere. I'm not quite sure. I'll have to dig around for it. My movie collection really needs to get get updated in terms of my organization because and now I have a grandson that comes over and likes to pull all the DVDs and Blu-rays off the shelf. So <laughs> it's it's hopeless, you know. The reason why I ask is because Gilliam is kind of he stated whenever it came out that he sees it as kind of like a spiritual sequel to Brazil in a way. I think not in the sense of like the same world. But I think just like thematically of like him saying, if I made Brazil today, what would it look right. like? Interesting. So I rewatched it. I yeah, I mean, like the first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, I'm really not a fan of this. Um, I'd still say it's my least favorite Gilliam film. Um, I appreciated it more this last time, but I think it just kind of it, it's like too on the nose. Like there's so much. It's so dialogue heavy that. I'm just like this is just as like philosophical nonsense at points, and it's just like this. Like watching, I was like, this feels like exactly like a film I wanted to write, like my freshman year of college. Uh, <laughs> like, well, it also has some um, some special effects in it that that are not quite ready for prime time. I, you know, yeah, I, stuff that kind of takes you out of the story. In Brazil, there's never anything. You always feel like you're in a real practical world there. You feel like what's happening in the camera is the world that exists there. So the willing suspension of disbelief is is uh, you're still connected throughout the whole thing, even though it's bizarre and it does mm-hmm. it has some you know interesting quirky jumps. You, you don't have like a visual switch that occurs where uh, you know you have the Christoph Waltz character floating around in this this outer space sort of thing it's like i don't get it i just don't get it it doesn't i you have to be real careful with that you know we we teach you guys in the in the film uh school uh we teach you you know to make sure that your lighting's consistent continuity of lighting continuity of action because you don't want people suddenly going oh that looks like a different movie did we just switch Mm -hmm. stories you know uh and i think i think the zero theorem suffers from some of that and again i don't i'm not sure the source of it it would be interesting to hear if gilliam has any modern commentary on what was going on there with regard to the production with regard to his point of view one of the things that he said that made me appreciate it a bit more was and i think this is in regards to it being like the modern day brazil of saying like i wanted to see what it would be like to make a completely disconnected person in the most like connected point Mm. that humanity has ever been in got it Interesting, and so I I see some of that, but I think it kind of gets muddled in a lot of the other kind of like other philosophical like the nothingness part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's like we got to prove nothingness, and I'm like, eh, yeah, okay. And <laughs> I think that like Gilliam has described himself as being two sides, where he's Pollyanna, but he is also um, a nihilistic philosopher. Yep. And I think this. That zero theorem was much more in the nihilistic philosopher side and less in the Pollyanna, like less balanced. While Brazil is like completely balanced, and that's why it's so good. Yeah, yeah I would agree. I would agree. Um, I I have not seen uh, the man who killed 
Don Quixote. I have not seen it. Um, mm. I need to see it. I need to find it. Yep. I don't know if uh, I don't think Criterion has it. Um, but no, uh, I just need to. I just need to order it. I can probably get it through Amazon. I just need to order it. I need to bite the bullet because it's so long in coming. Uh, Terry Gilliam's journey on that film is worth uh, rewarding him with a purchase of the of the uh, of the DVD or Blu-ray. So, right. It's, yeah. It's. Have you seen it, Creed? I I just watched it. Yeah. Yes, I I loved it. It is not a perfect movie, but I <laughs> no, loved it. Not by it any is, by any means. It is a messy masterpiece. A That's messy what I would say. It is all over the place. Mm-hmm. No, I'm I'm with you. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> just oh, yeah. all of the Don Quixote stuff. I think one of the things I admire about him the most is just like how persistent he is, and just like even with like the Don Quixote thing of just like. I'm just still going to do it, you know, like even though he had like the worst filming experience you could ever possibly had still was just like, yeah, of course I'm going to make this movie. It just has to happen. Well, it wasn't just a worst filming experience. It was a non-filming experience pretty much, but yeah. it was also, it was another studio debacle because the, uh, the, um, completion, uh, insurance company just came and took it over. They destroyed all of his, uh, costumes and props. I mean, the, the lost in La Mancha mm-hmm. documentary, should be must see mm. for any filmmaker to understand the liability, the peril of what you're getting involved in when you when you take on a uh, a feature length uh, project that's a period piece that's uh, shot internationally. I mean, all of the variables were working against them. Uh, so you know, senior project student, you know, senior cinema project student, do a 12 minute film, please. You know, do something manageable. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> I know. Looking looking back on mine, I'm like. I definitely shot for it to be too long. There's too much ambition with it. It's like you got to do something small, succinct, and like something that you can just form into, I don't know. You can do all the stuff that you want to do as a director, but you can do it in a manageable uh, package. And then when you're done with that, then you have that to go on and and you scale. You become, you know, then you do it a little slightly longer. Well, seniors just don't know what filmic brevity is. (laughs) They don't. You got to do following, not... Apocalypse Now. Yeah. <laughs> it films seven exactly. movies. Uh, watching uh, it again this time, I also had to mourn a little bit the loss of Ian Holm. You know, I I, I, I love him in this movie. I, I also like him in, uh, you know, the the uh, Chariots of Fire and uh, the Lord of the Rings Alien. stuff. Um, I just, I, I don't know. There's just something about him. He's just a sweet little man. Uh, mm-hmm. That and he's really pathetic in this, needing Sam's help. But, but he's just a classic actor. Um, it was a really, yeah. it's a shame uh, that he's gone. And I think his character's name is a nod to the guy who created Mad Magazine and Gilliam's first employer, because uh, I can't remember what his first name is, but his last name is Kurtzman. So I think that's a nod to that. He embodies English angst so well. <laughs> In a way that nobody else does, I think. Drink your tea. The, what do I do next? Oh, go ahead. Drink your tea. My, my wrist. My wrist. <laughs> I think that's the the funniest part. I think it's the funniest part of the movie is the moments when he's like, "We're doomed. Everything's over." And he's like, "We could um, give them the check." And he's like, yeah. oh, "You're a genius." Like, <laughs> so good. That and yeah. the desk. The desk is a brilliant, brilliant piece. Yeah, and even just like the 
him bursting up out of the ground and like holding him down in the dream sequence is just I think I think the dream sequences in this are perfectly cut like you were saying earlier Sned that there's some really fascinating scenes in it but um, I was reading through the screenplay and I was like it's just not as streamlined with all like there's just so many more dream sequences in it and if they had had added all of them I think it would have been really distracting and detract from kind of the main story that was going on like there's a complete he says there's a completely different film in the dreams ah, interesting well you know that again that speaks to his uh, the episodic work that he did in animation and uh in the python uh years and and he just i i, I can imagine that here's two or three streams of thought going on in his brain at the same time he's probably the ultimate add personality and um Again, I, I used to say I wanted to, to sail across the Atlantic Ocean with William F. Buckley, the conservative uh, writer-commentator. I thought that would be a really cool to spend a couple of nights, a couple of days and nights uh, on a sailboat. Uh, now I would really like to do like a road trip with Terry Gilliam and oh, you know, yeah. go back and visit his, uh, his, his home area in uh, Minnesota where he grew up and uh, you know, maybe do a reenactment of... Uh, uh, a road trip to Las Vegas, you know, and the fear and loathing yeah. stuff. Although I don't, I can't subscribe to the Hunter S. Thompson behaviors, but um, right, yeah. Hey, maybe we'll bump into Tobey Maguire. Yeah, so. <laughs> totally. Yes. <laughs> so in in our last episode, whenever you're covering um, the celebration and limitations, one of the things that John brought up was like that he didn't think the limitations of that film really aided to the creativity in it. Um, so as to this film, like the limitations in it of being both budget and everything post-production, how do we think that kind of adds up to the film's completion and the creativity and the creative side of that? I don't know that this film suffered from limitations in the pre-production and production phase. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that Gilliam was very uh, aware of how to do something on a limited budget because of his years working for the BBC and and the Pythons. And then, uh, you know, doing amazing things with the camera position, lensing, uh, mise-en-scene, um, you know, spending his money really well. Um, I don't know that he felt limitations at the, at the time that he was making and, and doing the initial cut of the film. The limitations totally emerged when uh, they started to uh, gripe about uh, the length of the film and asking him to cut it. And then at that moment, uh, the crunch just came in. And then he had to, he had to forge a... Uh, uh, methodology or a mindset uh, to to beat the beat the dragon. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's uh, there probably were things that if we were, we were to ask him now, what were the things you couldn't get done? Like the eyeball sequence. There must have been some technological and budgetary concerns that that had them cut all those additional dream sequences. Yeah, it sounds like the dream sequence... Like, I think there's the first version that when they cut those dream sequences, whether that was him deciding that or or that was corporate, you know, telling him to cut it, I think that was an effective decision. And then I think there's the the battle... To to emerge from this with such a good piece of art that actually got released is, is, you know, that's, that's the limitations in editing, breeding creativity. For him to be able to cut it down, I don't think he lost very much and i think i think he he was able to pres- he had this great movie that was longer he was able to win that battle to give a little ground on length which makes sense and not lose 
the character of the film. So I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about you've put shackles on yourself or you've had people put shackles. You know, you, you have limitations and then you go do something well. This is the opposite. This is you have something well done and you have to preserve it. And I think that uh, he was able to win that battle, which is really impressive um, because other people have lost that battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I almost think that the limitations kind of push forward more for his later films as well and just like how he deals with the studio and getting his final cut and like the perseverance of this giving him like the perseverance of like Don Quixote or of finishing through Baron Munchausen even though like everything was going wrong on that set as well and really just having like a better idea and a better head to deal with studio people. Should we move on to trivia and challenge? I'm game. I'm ready. All right. Question number one. How much did the executive gift that Sam receives multiple of in the film cost to make? So A, $500, B, $2,000, C, $100, or D, $1,200? I have no idea. Yeah. How much could a banana cost, Michael? $12? I have no idea. Don't ask me. And this is the like little guillotine yes or no gift. Yeah, yeah. How much did it cost to produce? Uh, to produce. Okay, not how much it cost to buy. No, yeah. So they made they the made prop. the prop. Okay, I'm gonna say twelve hundred. I'm gonna say a hundred. It's two thousand. Two thousand bucks to make that. So how many did they make? What? I don't. I think they reused the same one. A couple of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's. That's one of the most wasteful decisions I think they made on the entire budget because that does not seem like two thousand dollars. Well, right, you don't really get a chance to see it, but it, it looks like it has a lot of precision machining. That's that's part of it. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it looked like it had uh, like an almost a ebony and uh, then a, a stainless steel uh, base with the yes and no on it. Yeah, I was curious, yeah. and there were several people playing with theirs. Uh, the guy next door, mm-hmm. um, the the. Uh, the um, uh, guy, yeah, lime, yeah, lime, yeah, yeah, hilarious. Yeah, the guy that the guy that says he's really good at computers and then types like three words per minute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's broken. He didn't even turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. All right, question number two: What role did Robert De Niro originally want to play? Is it A. Jack Lent, B. Sam, C. Mr. Kurtzman? Or D Spore. I know this one. John A. Yeah, Jack Lind. A. He wanted to be Lind. Yep. Yeah, and he he didn't get the role because he had already because uh, Gilliam had already promised it to Michael Palin. So. Yeah, which I think you know he does a perfect job. Michael Palin is my favorite Python. Like I I think he's so funny, but also just like has like that charm yep. to him as yep. well. We yeah. did not even talk about the parenting involved with his character but oh my gosh who boy that might be the darkest thing in the whole movie (laughs) i know (laughs) Ah, that scene (laughs) that is something else the the fact that that movie can keep surprising you and weirding you out that deep (laughs) into the movie is just spectacular because that's just you should get used to it and you never do (laughs) yeah which that's the only scene that they reshot and they reshot to add her in it and that's Gilliam's own daughter oh my gosh plays the role you can imagine the family gatherings with that family my goodness oh gosh 
Yeah. So this question is for you, Sned. I mean, John, you can answer too. Uh, which Python does not appear in a Gilliam film, not including his Monty Python films? A, Eric Idle, B, Terry Jones, C, Graham Chapman, or D, John Cleese? Oh, man. I mean, I should just automatically know this, and I'm going to lean on Graham Chapman because uh, Chapman died. Uh, but I'm trying to recall. I know that uh, John Cleese is in uh, Time Bandits and uh, uh, Michael Palin's in Time Bandits. Terry Jones, hmm. Uh, meaning of Life doesn't count, right? No. Nope. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to go with Chapman. Yeah, that's my guess, too. I guess, yep, too. Yep, that's, that's correct. So Terry Jones is in Jabberwock. Ah, got it. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right, here's your challenge. And, Sned, I'm glad that you have uh, that Dark Knights and Holy Fools book because this will help you out for it and i can give you uh, a lot of pointers for this all right list 10 unmade films that gilliam considered making or was considered to direct at some point oh man i have to name if it was 10 made of them? there's a lot of them i know but i i mean I, and i can you want i me can to give you a... the book and try to find them on each page i don't know i don't have a clue you, Okay. Is this for both of us or just It for is him? for both of you. Yeah. Okay. Uh if it was made by someone else after Yes, that's still if it was it, still made by someone else, that still counts. If he was considered okay. at some point. Okay. Yes. Well, and I mean I, I could can, read them to you because now I found the place here at the end of the book where it's talking about it. Yeah. Is that what is this what you're referencing? Yeah. Well, I'm totally cheating. This is what's this is why we don't want to do remote learning because we know the students are going to do their reading quizzes <laughs> while the books are open. Um, just go ahead and enlighten us, my friend, because I I do. do you want me to just give them to you? I just or John, I, do you want to try to get some of them? They don't come. Let me try and okay, John, go for it. No, I'm not gonna get through ten though. But uh, no, just just do as much as you can, and I'll list them off afterwards. Oh, man, um, you just mentioned one in our conversation. I can't remember the name of it, but that one, whatever that was. Yes, that one. I don't know what that, uh, what that one. one is. Trying to think of types right. of movies that like you would want him to do, um, toys. I have no idea. No, no idea. No. Okay. Okay. Are they mostly like? Oh yeah, that would have been a t- one of his. There's movies. a lot of them like, where I would tried n- to get him. There's a lot of them where I'd never guess that he would direct it. All right, I just want to hear them. I have no. I have no way to guess. Okay. All right, and this is like even just like not fully, like he he wasn't even brought on, but was considered at some point. So there's some loose loose ones in there. Uh, Watchmen, Harry Potter, Enemy Mine, Gormenghast, A Scanner Darkly, Time Bandits 2, A Tale of Two Cities, Tesla, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame film, a Looney Tunes film, which that one's weird, uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Theseus and the Minotaur, Defective Detective, the Son of Strange Love, which was supposed to be his collaboration with Stanley Kubrick. Oh wow! Braveheart, Forrest Gump, Truman Show, Good Omens, an Alien sequel, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Gosh, that's more than ten, Connor. You just want us to come up with I ten know. of them? <laughs> wow! Who framed? Who framed Roger Rabbit makes that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, that, yeah. Um, there, how is there a Doctor Strange Love sequel? I know. I don't get like it. Like how? How could you even? 
that movie doesn't have a sequel. Is it them in the bunker? Yeah, they <laughs> survived. I mean, it's, they, I'm sure they survived in the bunker. So now you've got Doctor Strangelove and you've got the George C. Scott character. and mm-hmm. That could be interesting. Let's do a comedy dri- driven by world-ending conflict. Take away the conflict. Yes, my Take away Fiona. the locations. <laughs> just, put it, just put them in a box. Just do a bottle episode. And have this Terry Gilliam direct it. Actually, you know it. what? If I was going to do that premise of a movie, you'd need someone like Terry Gilliam to make it work. That's so he, true. He, he could make an under, underground post-apocalyptic world make interesting. I think what the year one, was that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, sometime while Kubrick was alive, so... 80s or 90s. The one I'm the most curious about is the Watchmen one. I, I, for most of these, I can kind of picture him doing a version of it. This, like, I cannot imagine how he would make Watchmen. Well, I love the new Watchmen. Um, and, you know, it's, oh, this yeah. is a total subject for a totally another uh, podcast. Actually, this is a film podcast, not a uh, uh, episodic uh, <laughs> series podcast. But I watched it and I liked it be- in part because I knew somebody that worked on the show. And then mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, you remember Mona Bowen? Um, the, oh, the, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's like my best friend. So, She's awesome. Yeah, she is amazing. So um, so she worked on the show. So I always like to kind of just support that and, and see the mm-hmm. – she's a hairstylist. Um, but uh, I didn't really get it. I was like, ah, I'm not quite sure. My son said, well, you read the graphic novel, right? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. And he so he gave me it for Christmas. I read the graphic novel, and then I went – Oh, yeah. So then I watched yep. it again, and I realized how even the nuance of the new version of it. I hated the movie. the 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 movie. Oh, was, the movie's garbage. Yeah, it's the Zack Snyder film. It was horrible. Yeah. So I was not a big fan of it. Um, by the way, we're watching Lovecraft Country. Oh yeah. Oh that? my! So that's another one that Mona worked on. <laughs> yep. Is that on HBO? HBO or? Max. Yeah. Anything yeah. that uses that font. Gets my attention. You're sold. <laughs> ITC Gothic. I love it. Yeah. What is it? What is it about? What is it about? Because it looks interesting. Lo- but I Lovecraft it Country. Up. Well, it's it's based on H.P. Lovecraft, who was the uh, science fiction mm-hmm. writer, the Cthulhu guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He uh, the the story though has got an interesting twist because H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was also a notorious uh, racist and anti semite, and. Yeah. Uh, and this is uh, the main characters are uh, African American uh, who are sci-fi geeks, basically, and mm-hmm. are trying to uh, find a missing okay. uh, family member, and they go to Lovecraft Country to um, to try to find this missing family member, and then encounter all of the uh, <laughs> all of the, hmm. the the monsters and stuff of. So uh, there's only been two episodes. There's another one uh, drops okay. tomorrow night. So cool. I'll have to check that out then. Sorry, I'm dating the podcast. Oh. No, you're good. We, we've we had so many da- dating things in our past. I mean, even just talking about <laughs> masks and everything right now, you know. So it's it's all good. It's just historical context for the audience for whenever they're listening to it. I think that about wraps us up. Sned, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's always great having you here. It's always great to be with you guys. I am I am just uh, – I'm honored to uh, to offer my uh, my – my you know my gibberish because sometimes i get a little uh distracted but what what's really cool is to know how deeply you guys are thinking about this stuff and that encourages me uh it really makes me uh proud of your uh progress and and if i had any any part in causing you to uh to think differently about films then uh oh, yeah. you know my work here is done <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, definitely. I mean, without you, this show definitely wouldn't exist. And Absolutely. So, yeah. Audience, you have Sned to thank uh, for this show. Oh, well, then um, just send the checks to... <laughs> <laughs> the checks are the bills. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I, I got enough bills to pay. <laughs> oh, yeah, boy. and I... I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, you know, I think first time, a couple times you were on before was before I was on. But yep. uh, even for me, a graphic design graphic designer that took like f- two cinema classes, it it was still very influential on just on learning how to think. So I think that is really, you know, we're, it, the, the sh- that's kind of the the basis of the show is helping people think through how to talk about cinema. So I think I yep. really appreciate any time you can come on. You know, mm-hmm. anytime, Definitely. anytime. Yeah, yeah. You'll just have to give us another film recommendation for which one you want to do next. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we could do some Terrence Malick. I know you love Terrence Malick, uh, Connor. So, well, ironic enough that <laughs> that you said that. <laughs> he knows us too well. I know you know he us knows too well. Podcast too well. Um. So the next film that we are covering is Knight of Cups. Ah, um, very good. So, so yeah. who, who is your promo? Your uh, your guest? Who's your Who's your guest? Oh, we don't have a guest on uh, that one. Well, so if you want to come two weeks in a row, <laughs> yeah, I I have only seen it once. Um, I liked mm-hmm. it. I thought it was good, but yeah, that's that's for another time. Yeah, 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 definitely. We, we'll, we, we'll save you for Tree of Life. Yeah, we wanted to do one of the three in that era where you know, and I've always yeah. been fascinated by that that part of his career, but just the ones without scripts right. as a limitation. Yeah. And it was interesting because I didn't know that he didn't do scripts, but I was always like really fascinated because. Uh, I mean, this is a guy that comes out with masterpieces every two decades, you know, and anytime he comes out with a movie, it's a big deal. Everyone talks about it. And then he comes with three movies that, as far as I could tell from watching the trailers, were beautiful. Three, what, three year, three and three years, and no one talked, yeah. like, I didn't hear anything about them. No no negative or positive, just no uh, buzz whatsoever. And I, and it makes sense now, okay. They were too, they were so ethereal. So it'll be interesting. I haven't watched it yet, but it'll be interesting talking through that and and seeing someone that I really like a lot with a little bit of a change on how they make the movie. Yeah. So we'll we'll do that. That'll be our second to last episode in our limitation series. So make sure to check that out. And you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all that sort of stuff. You can find us at Rules of the Frame. Please feel free to start up a dialogue. We love creating a film community. Um, we try to post every day. It doesn't happen nowadays as often because of how busy we are. But yeah, feel free to comment on there. You can send us a DM if you have any questions about the show or any comments, recommendations, or if you want to challenge us on a position that we have taken against a film, or if you want to just call us out for a fact that we got wrong, please feel free to do that. You can email us or contact us on social media. We'll respond either way. Uh, we got to thank you, John, for the use of the graphic, and Caden Rieg, Ethan Stafford, and Luke Hogan for the use of the theme song and outro. This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience. All right.